Welcome to Cancer Conversations, a podcast series from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode from November 2015, Dr. Jeffrey Oxnard, a medical oncologist with Dana-Farber's Lowe Center for Thoracic Oncology, discusses the latest in lung cancer research and treatment, including recent news around targeted therapy and immunotherapy. Melanie Graham from Dana-Farber's Communications Department joins him for the conversation. Today we're going to be talking with Dr. Jeffrey Oxnard on the latest in lung cancer treatment and research. Dr. Oxnard is a physician with Dana-Farber's Lowe Center for Thoracic Oncology, and he's also an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Oxnard, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So uh, we want to kick it off uh, just kind of with some updates. How has lung cancer treatment changed in the last five to ten years? How are patients benefiting today uh, more than they were, you know, a decade ago? I think it's cool that we can talk, even talk about how much it's changed in the past three months. Uh, the idea that uh, drugs are emerging at a rapid pace now and options are being created for our lung cancer patients, very exciting. I mean, 10 years ago, uh, a clinical trial would say, it doesn't matter what chemo we give to a lung cancer patient, they all have the same outcome. And clinical trials today are much more nuanced about uh, finding the right drug for the right, right patient, uh, lots of different treatment tools for our patients uh, so that they even with stage four disease, which is generally incurable, they can find a way to live for a long time with their cancer if they just find the right drug that, that suits their cancer and gets them the right benefit. So I think there's a lot of optimism in lung cancer and a lot of options for patients uh, and a lot of clinical trials and a lot of excitement about, uh, about new things that might be coming. Patients always ask me, uh, you know, what's my prognosis doc? And I say, gosh, lung cancer treatment has changed so much today compared to a year ago or a year before that, that it's even hard to estimate what we're going to be doing in the future. And you just got to sort of keep going and try to stay ahead of the science. Great. So we're going to get into a lot of that uh, new research and um, new treatments later on. Uh, but one of the you know, biggest topics that's out there right now is the idea that um, you don't have to have smoked to get lung cancer. I think there's a big stigma out there that people mm -hmm. talk about um, and that really the only risk factor is that you have to have lungs. <laughs> um, so we know that m you know, lung cancer leading cause is smoking, but there are a large number of patients out there who have actually never smoked. So do we know what drives their disease and you know, how have we developed treatments around that? Um, I think part of the nihilism of 10 years ago, no, doesn't matter what you do for lung cancer, the same outcome, was the idea that all lung cancer patients are the same. And what we've learned is, in fact, there's a lot of heterogeneity within that population. Yes, uh, smoking is the risk factor, the most common risk factor for lung cancer, but I like to tell my patients, you know, I know what caused your lung cancer, bad luck. And that's true. And that smoking is one way to get bad luck, and maybe there are other occupational exposures that can give you that bad luck, or maybe it's just bad luck and we don't know. Uh, and in some patients, uh, it can just be a simple genetic switch that can cause the lung cancer. Uh, and and I, I hate to make it sound like it's out of your control, except to say that we, we can't pinpoint a cause for everyone. Uh, even when we get rid of smoking, which we know is the most important way to reduce lung cancer incidence worldwide, uh, lung cancer is still going to be out there. Uh, lung cancer in, in non-smokers is itself the seventh most common cancer worldwide. And so this is its own problem. And, and appreciating that helps us recognize this heterogeneity and that, in fact, we may have some kinds of therapies 
that are more, more effective in the biology of non-smokers lung cancer and other therapies that may be more effective in the biology of smokers lung cancer. Smokers lung cancer. And so uh, we, we try to get at this nuance. In fact, for all my patients, I try to quantify exactly how much they smoked and how long because it helps me get insight into possible differences in, in their underlying biology. Um, is there a hereditary, any kind of hereditary link with lung cancer? The, you know, um, in, there are a lot of families out there that have gotten lung cancer in, in multiple relatives. The most common shared characteristic is that all these relatives perhaps smoke cigarettes. Uh, and so when you eliminate that environmental cause, is there an additional inherited risk that's apparent uh, aside from the, uh, perhaps an inherited disposition to smoking? Uh, and the answer is, is yes, there are, there are rare uh, familial syndromes. There's one that I study uh, where you can actually have an inherited EGFR mutation. EGFR mutations, we'll talk about, it, is the most common subtype of lung cancer, uh, or the most common genetic subtype that we know how to target. Um, but, but in terms of inherited risk, there is a really rare inherited gene called EGFR T7NEM that can lead to familial lung cancer in non-smokers. Uh, I don't think it's, I mean, it's nowhere near common enough that people should be out there looking for it, but its existence makes us think twice and makes us appreciate that there's more to lung cancer than just smoking, and there may be, in fact, inherited genes we don't appreciate now, and we need to sort of take what we know about the genetic diversity of lung cancer and use that to revisit what causes lung cancer, and maybe we'll find more of these inherited syndromes. And so we have a clinical trial at Dana-Farber studying these families, um, these rare families, hoping to learn from them and learn things that we can apply otherwise to, to perhaps non-smoking families with lung cancer. Um, so you mentioned EGFR. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about EGFR and maybe some of the other genes that might drive some, some of these mm -hmm. diseases? And these genes, when we talk about them, are primarily meaning the cancer's genes, not right. the family's genes, right? These are cancer genes and they seem to be signatures that lead to certain kinds of cancers. The, uh, the oldest signature we've known about is KRAS. KRAS is a very common signature in cancer. It happens in colon cancer, it happens in pancreatic cancer. Uh, we don't really have great targeted therapies for KRAS. The next most common is EGFR. We do have targeted therapies for EGFR. And then over the past five years, we've identified other less common uh, but, but uh, very meaningful signatures that can lead to targeted therapies. Those include ALK, and there are ALK inhibitors available, uh, ROS rearrangements, there are ROS inhibitors available, MET mutations are, are recently discovered, uh, RET, BRAF, HER2, uh, it, the list goes on and on. And in fact, a number of the genes in this list are really only 1% of lung cancer. And you think 1% of lung cancer, I mean, how can that be meaningful? But, but even 1% of lung cancer is thousands of people a year in the United States and many more thousands around the world. 1% uh, of lung cancer is more common than some of the other cancer types out there. Uh, and the problem is those 1% tend to blend in into the, the total of lung cancer. And so one of our, our research priorities is finding those 1%, identifying these individuals, because if you add up all the 1%, they add up to 10, 15% of lung cancer, and that's a meaningful population that needs our focus and needs targeted therapies to help them do better with their disease. So targeted, th targeted therapies, that's the next topic I want to go into. What are some of the things that are on the horizon, or what are some of the recent developments that are coming out for? Let's first talk about the concept of targeted therapy, right? The chemotherapy is, is, a, is the older uh, tool that we use in lung cancer. Chemotherapy is effective. I mean, we know chemotherapy can really work for a lot of different cancer types. Uh, it has perhaps more toxicities, especially has cumulative toxicities. It can be hard to be on chemotherapy for a long time. And it's not exactly a smart 
tool. You kind of give it and cross your fingers, um, but there's not really a biomarker to tell us who's, who's going to work and who's not. The idea of a targeted therapy is can we actually figure out a biomarker, a signature in the patient's cancer that makes them vulnerable to this smart drug, perhaps milder, more tolerable drug. And the most exciting of these are oral therapies, pills that you take once a day that hit at an innate vulnerability of the cancer and can lead it to, to melt away reliably. And when I say reliably, I mean you know 90% of the time you have this vulnerability, you get this pill, and we see a dramatic benefit. And so these pill therapies are now very common in our, in our clinical practice for EGFR, for ALK, for ROS, for BRAF, for MET. Uh, and really it's one of the fundamental second tools. I tell my patients, you know, there's a variety of tools we're going to use for your cancer. One of them is going to be chemotherapy. One of them is going to be targeted therapy. One of them might be immunotherapy. We'll talk about that down the line. But if we can find a vulnerability, connect you to a pill therapy, it's another strategy uh, that can perhaps lead to durable and dramatic benefit. One of the neat parts of that is the idea of starting with one pill and going to the next ones. Putting together targeted therapies against a certain type of cancer. Uh, this is, this is done now in prostate cancer, for example, where you don't have just your first uh, 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 hormonal therapy. You now sequence together several hormonal therapies, getting at an underlying vulnerability. And so we're increasingly doing this in lung cancer now, too. We have a number, we have two ALK inhibitors that are FDA approved, a first-line ALK inhibitor, a second-line ALK inhibitor. We have multiple EGFR inhibitors that are approved and others that are now emerging. So you can start with a first drug and then get a second drug that sort of attacks a certain kind of resistance of the first drug using up the targeted approach before perhaps you need to go back to chemotherapy. Okay, so that actually answered one of my next questions was whether you can do these in conjunction or is it one after another? So could you do chemo and then targeted therapy? Do you do them at the same time? How does that work? I think for a lot of patients, we try to check these genetic signatures first. So in my patients who first come in with metastatic, non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, I'll look for EGFR, I'll look for ALK, I'll look for ROS. Those are the, the sort of the low-hanging fruit. And if I find them within a, a short time frame, uh, start a pill therapy. But, but if I can't find them, I might turn to chemotherapy, which is, again, a, a, an established regimen that has a proven track record. And while we're doing chemo, dig deeper and look for something else, uh, hoping that I can then switch back to pill-targeted therapy as a second-line agent. Or maybe I'll, if, if I find something that I can't use second line, even further down the line, I'll look for a clinical trial. And so in, in that way, I'm going back and forth. And some of my patients who are on an EGFR inhibitor, uh, we need to switch to chemotherapy before we can find them something else. And so these are tools that we use back and forth. I think the important principles there are the standard tools. And those are the tools that are FDA approved and we can use at any time. And there are the clinical trials. And the clinical trials are bonus treatments that, that fit into that regimen at extra points and maybe get you an extra shot on goal to find a great drug. And so in my patients, if I can find them a clinical trial that's exciting and they're eligible, I generally say go for it because we can always switch back to standard therapy later. But this clinical trial might only fit your disease right now, and we should take that advantage. Um, so we actually just got a question in asking where radiation therapy fits into all of this. It's a great point. And so I say chemotherapy, targeted therapy, immunotherapy, and local therapy are the full to four tools I tell my patients about um, for, for, uh, for their cancer. In a patient with early stage lung cancer, just one mass and lymph nodes, local therapy like surgery and radiation is in fact the most important part. Uh, in a patient with metastatic disease where they have multiple sites of disease, local therapy 
you can't really cut it all out. You need to use local therapy sort of intelligently for specific sites of concern. And so we'll use radiation for a brain metastasis that's hard to control with chemo or a bone metastasis that's bothersome. But it's true that local therapy is one of our tools that we will fit into a patient's experience trying to fight their lung cancer over many years. Great. Um, do you think that all lung cancer patients should be tested for gene mutations? Uh, the standard of care today in lung cancer is that in patients with non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, and so we talk about lung cancer, the, the most common type is non-small cell. Small cell is also uh, the second type, a little more aggressive. Um, in non-small cell, there's squamous and non-squamous. Those are sort of three subtypes. All of this genetic targeted therapy has been developed under non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, and in that disease, it is our standard of care to test for these genetic alterations. But the fact that we have made such a big impact in this subtype means that we're moving into these other diseases saying, how can we find similar genetic signatures in squamous, non-small cell lung cancer and in small cell lung cancer? So in fact, there's a really big national clinical trial trying to test for genetic alterations in squamous, non-small cell lung cancer. This is a, a, a NCI, National Cancer Institute, run trial through the cooperative groups um, and, and that is called the, the lung map or lung master protocol, uh, trying to find genetic signatures in squamous lung cancer. Small cell lung cancer is sort of catching up a little bit. We're still trying to learn about that. I would say for standard practice, it's for non-squamous, but as part of research, and here at Dana-Farber, we actually do genetic testing on everyone as part of a research protocol. We try to characterize everyone's lung cancer to, to learn about opportunities and then develop targeted therapies for those genetic signatures that we find. So let's shift gears a little bit. Um, you've mentioned it a few times, but immunotherapy is really a hot topic right now, and we had a lot of questions come in about it. Um, so can you just talk about some of the latest developments for lung cancer mm -hmm. and how they're uh, improving treatment? Sure. Uh, the, the principle of using the immune system to attack cancer is an old one. Uh, the uh, Probably the, the best established is, is called stem cell transplant, the idea of taking out your immune system, getting someone else's immune system into your body to, to attack your leukemia. Uh, and that is a very uh, complex and, and uh, toxic therapy, but is very effective in parts of oncology. Uh, trying to use the immune system in lung cancer uh, has involved vaccine therapies sometimes. We've been trying, a, a number of different tools have been tried, and it's really been decades of immune therapy research that has not really panned out for lung cancer until suddenly uh, we have these new class of drugs called immune checkpoint inhibitors. And these checkpoint inhibitors um, sort of disinhibit. The immune system is, is uh, we like to think of it as the, the, the tumor and the immune system are always interacting. And the immune system is sort of sniffing out tumor cells. And the immune system learns to use the signal to tell the immune system, move on by. Ignore me. You know, uh, these are not the droids you're looking for. Uh, and so it puts on this little flag called PDL1. Uh, and if, if the immune system sees this flag, it says, oh, we can ignore that. We can pass on by. And so uh, not all tumors use this flag. Maybe 20 or 30 percent, maybe more, use these signals to evade the immune system, evade the immune surveillance that our body's always doing. Uh, if we can block that signal, the immune system wakes up, sees the cancer cell, and can attack it and wipe it out. And so these are drugs like nivolumab, pembrolizumab, ipilimumab, which are inhibitors of these checkpoints trying to help the immune system wake up, see the cancer, and, and do what it's supposed to be doing. Now, it doesn't work for everyone. Uh, these drugs work, you know, maybe 20% of patients. We're still trying to figure out who they work best for. They may work a little better in folks who smoke cigarettes because it led, leads to more complicated 
genetic types of cancers, we think, versus in non-smokers, lung cancer, they're genetically more simple, and maybe the immune system uh, isn't able to uh, attack those as well. Uh, we're still learning, but, but they now become a new tool for our patients. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we, we tend to give it a try often after chemotherapy. We'll try this because it's not a sure bet, but some patients can have very dramatic responses that can last a long time. And, uh, and it's very rewarding to have seen some of these patients who have, you know, their cancer sort of melted away. Uh, some patients, in fact, do after a couple of years being on a drug like this are now stopping and saying, can I take a break? Maybe from here on in, my immune system will do the job and I don't need treatment. And that's an exciting idea. Uh, I, I would say that we haven't sorted it out yet. We now have a new set of options and a new excitement over how we can do even better and make immune therapy an option for everyone. Uh, and so an enormous number of trials are now being developed for a, a wide range of drugs in lung cancer trying to make immune therapy one of our fundamental tools along with chemo and targeted therapy. So you mentioned this a bit with smokers versus non-smokers. Are there certain types of lung cancer, like small cell, non-small cell, that work better or immunotherapy seems to work better on? So uh, as I talked about the three subtypes, non-squamous, non-small cell, squamous, non-small cell, and small cell. Immunotherapies currently are available and FDA approved for the two types of non-small cell, squamous and non-squamous, uh, and, and are under investigation for small cell lung cancer. Um, but but I, I think you will find that these drugs are gonna try to find a toehold in every type of cancer. Uh, you know, they're being studied in, in the rarer thoracic malignancies like mesothelioma, and people are talking about it in thymoma. So even the rarest diseases are now getting some attention, trying to make these drugs available really for everyone is the goal. So we got this question in, um, sent from a viewer via email. Uh, she says, given the high recurrence rates, uh, is there any kind of preventative immunotherapy uh, for early stage, like stage one lung cancer? So if somebody were to say have surgery or something like that, then would you go on immunotherapy just to prevent a recurrence? It's a great question. So we, we talked about our, our four tools treating lung cancer and for early stage lung cancer, the, the, the you know, stage two lung cancer, lung mass and lymph node, the, the essential tool first is surgery to get it out. Uh, and then we use chemotherapy to improve the cure rate. That's standard, it's called adjuvant chemotherapy, trying to eradicate any hidden cancer cells that are left behind. But at present, we don't use any targeted therapy in addition to the surgery and, and chemotherapy. And that's different, for example, from in breast cancer, where in breast cancer, you'll use surgery, you'll use chemotherapy, and then you might have adjuvant targeted therapy, like with trastuzumab or Herceptin, and then adjuvant hormonal therapy after that. And so uh, we have these targeted therapies now available. Why aren't we using these targeted therapies in cured or, or potentially cured patients to reduce the risk of recurrence like in breast cancer? And so uh, I'm actually one of the leads of this trial called the Alchemist trial, another NCI national trial uh, to look at adjuvant targeted therapies in resected lung cancer. So the, the trial is gonna screen thousands of patients taking their tumor and testing first for those key two genetic alterations, EGFR and ALK that we talked about. And in those patients that have EGFR or ALK, they are then eligible for uh, target, targeted therapy trials to try to uh, improve the cure rate. And so in patients with EGFR mutations after their surgery and, and, and if chemo, if they get it, they then are eligible to be randomized to adjuvant erlotinib, an EGFR inhibitor for two years versus placebo, no EGFR inhibitor, trying to say, does targeted therapy improve cure rates after surgery and chemotherapy for potentially cured early stage patients. And there is now a new trial being developed added to the Alchemist program to use adjuvant nivolumab, uh, a PD-1 inhibitor, also asking whether targeted therapy is an option for those who maybe don't have an EGFR 
or alkyl alteration. So it's a great question, and, and you would think that now with all these exciting targeted therapies, we can make targeted therapy an option for early stage patients. We're working on it. Great. Um, so another new kind of uh, angle for treating, um, and we talked a little bit, I, I don't know if you mentioned this before, but you've been leading some clinical development in um, a technique that would find the genetic ab abnormalities in patient tumors with a simple blood test. Right. So can you discuss this and kind of how it's leading the way for helping patients? So we, we've talked about genetic signatures being so important. We haven't talked about how complicated this can be, right? You have to get a biopsy. That biopsy has to be big enough to get to the pathologist, get the DNA out of it, and then run that DNA through a couple tricks to find the alteration. Uh, and, and that can take time. It can take a week for some of the simpler ones. It can take weeks and weeks for a more complicated test like next generation sequencing. Uh, and that hunting for a genetic signature is important. But if we can make it easier and faster, uh, then perhaps we can connect patients with targeted therapies uh, more easily. And so uh, towards that goal, we've developed a blood test for these EGFR mutations, uh, which are the most common signature, as we said, and the most important at this point. We, uh, it involves looking not at the cells in the blood, right? You take the cells out and you're looking at just the free DNA floating around. Most of that DNA floating around in a lung cancer patient's blood is the patient's DNA, not the tumor's DNA. But a subset of it, maybe 1% of it, is the tumor's DNA. And so if you take that DNA and sort of run through the molecules one by one looking at them, you can count how many of them are normal and how many of them are mutant. And we have a mach machine now that can do this, can sort of sift through this haystack looking for the needle that is the tumor's DNA and identifying a mutation that belongs to the tumor. And so in a couple days on a blood test now, we can find these important mutations and therefore connect patients to a targeted therapy really quickly and easily uh, without needing the process of a biopsy and, and, and the complexities of testing that and waiting around for the results. Uh, this is particularly important in the setting of resistance, right? You've been on a targeted therapy for a year or two. It's working for you. You now have resistance. The doc says, I need to know about your resistance. Let's get a new biopsy to figure out how your tumor's changed. And you're like, a new biopsy, you know? Do I need to? I've got to wait for the biopsy, and there's complications, and then I've got to wait for the results. And instead, quick blood tests in two days can say, do we find this signature of resistance or not? And that signature can lead to a new targeted therapy. So it's, it's a really exciting strategy because it's, it's convenient for patients and, and helps them get to targeted therapies faster. Uh, and we're working very hard to make it broadly available to sort of go from testing for the common stuff, EGFR and KRAS, to now testing for everything out of the sun to try to help as many patients as possible. So you mentioned resistance. That's actually one. Uh, we got a couple questions asking about that. Um, what research is being done to kind of work with patients who develop resistance to treatments. Yeah, um, and, and our labs have been studying that for a long time. Uh, I think learning about resistance requires biopsies, right? Figuring out what, what explains it requires getting, you know, having the old tissue, getting the new tissue, and saying what's changed. And, and that kind of research being done here over the past five years has, has led us to learn about the key signatures that can appear in EGFR, where you can acquire a new T790M mutation, or you can acquire MET amplification, or in ALK, where you can acquire new ALK mutations that explain resistance, and the same stories being done in ROS, et cetera. And so uh, there's a, a good track record of, the, of, the of using tumor tissue and using our laboratories to learn what explains resistance. The next question is, once you've figured out what explains it, how do you treat it? And an, an exciting story, I think, that's been going on here is, is, is finding that drug to inhibit T790M, the most common resistance mutation in EGFR. Uh, and in work 
uh, that started five years ago in the lab of Dr. Yanni and Dr. Nathaniel Gray here, they said, look, can we develop a new kind of EGFR inhibitor that focuses on inhibiting this T790M mutation and inhibiting the biology of the tumor without touching the patient's EGFR? Can we inhibit the cancer without causing any side effects? And it led to this whole new class of drugs, which are these mutant-specific third-generation EGFR inhibitors, which uh, have really just transformed our care of lung cancer. And we expect to be FDA-approved today. And it's very exciting to think about how you know, a single biopsy of a single patient and, and some work in the lab leads to a drug, which leads to trials, which then feeds back and helps those patients. That's the whole arc of translational research here. Uh, and it, it motivates us to do it more and do it better. And so there's a lot of, of using patient biology to lead to new drugs that then treat resistance even better. Uh, so I think we have excitement about how to do that. It's, it's always a problem, though. Right? As soon as you have the new drug, you have patients developing resistance to the new drug. And so it's a never-ending chase to, to figure out what causes it and to get the next drug ready for everyone. And, and the hope is that each of those drugs work long enough that patients can hang in there to benefit from the new drugs that emerge as we learn about what, ex what causes their resistance. So we've talked about a whole lot of new research and new ideas that are coming out. Do you have any resources where patients can find out about this, read a little bit more about it or anything like that? I mean, we have uh, you know, a website at St. Farber about the uh, a precision medicine website. So it talks a lot about these targeted therapies and the genetic changes to use. Um, we have a, a, a patient uh, forum coming up this Saturday, actually, where we're talking about oh, uh, targeted therapies. And, uh, and so that's going to be uh, all day this Saturday. Um, and, and talk about really the process of living with lung cancer and about, uh, about pa patients are out there. I mean, all around, there are people out there who are doing this and living with this disease uh, year after year. I think I have, I have sort of tools that I tell my patients as, as what you can do to do as well as possible. And I have th you know, three rules of living with lung cancer I tell my patients, which are don't act sick. Try to keep doing stuff. Try to hang out with your grandkids and go out to dinner and, and don't sit around. If you sit around and, and are, are too sedentary, you can get weaker. You really got to mobilize to try to hang on to your strength. I tell my patients, don't lose weight. Um, we aren't sure in lung cancer if there's a perfect diet that helps you do better except calories. Uh, weight loss is a problem. Uh, and I tell my patients I like them to have 10 extra pounds for a rainy day. And so, you know, patients who come see me, I tell them, go eat a cheeseburger, go eat ice cream, and try to make sure that you have the calories you need to maintain your strength. And my third rule is don't be a tough guy. Uh, make sure that when you feel sick, you call your doctor and say, you know, I'm having a bad day. I need to be seen. I need to be taken care of because your ability to take care of yourself, you know, it reflects our ability to take care of you so that we can get you ready for the next thing. There is an element of planning, and there's an element of trying to stay ahead and, and keep on top of what options are out there. Always ask about clinical trials. Always ask about what's out there for me. Uh, what are we going to do next, and, and what are you thinking about? And, and, and in that way, we can anticipate where to go next for your cancer and try to create options. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Oxnard. That was fantastic. A lot of great information and a lot of good tips for patients out there. Have a great afternoon. This has been Dana-Farber's Cancer Conversations, featuring Dr. Jeffrey Oxnard of Dana-Farber's Lowe Center for Thoracic Oncology. To download more episodes and learn about other cancer podcast series, visit DanaFarber.org slash podcasts.